Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today we're going to be speaking with Sophie Medlin. Sophie is a registered dietitian, a co-founder of City Dietitians, and writes extensively in the media. Today we're going to be speaking about food tribalism and why people feel the necessity to identify themselves with their diet and how that can affect the messages that those people are getting out about nutrition. Let's talk science. Sophie, how are you doing? I am well, how are you? I am very, very good. Um, absolutely delighted to have you here tonight. Uh, thank you very much. Um, just to get things rolling, um, would you like to kind of introduce yourself to anybody who might not know or be familiar with you or your work? Um, just a little bit of a background about maybe how you got into dietetics and nutrition um and then let's say your career and activities um up to now sure Please. so um i was a strange child who knew i wanted to be a dietitian from when i was about 15 and i feel very lucky that it's been and is continues to be everything i would want it to be uh, for a career so i studied nutrition and dietetics uh, at university so as a dietitian you have to do a three or four year undergraduate degree where you do hospital placements and learn to apply the science of nutrition to medicine in the same way doctors do and nurses do. And then we're licensed to practice as, as dietitians in hospitals and with sick people, again, in the same way that doctors and nurses are. So it's a protected title and no one else can call themselves dietitian unless they are one. Um, most of us then go and work in hospitals, which is exactly what I did. So I spent seven years in the NHS, which was an amazing experience. I loved uh, all of it. Some of it was very hard, but it was all very, very rewarding. And I specialised in um, the nutritional consequences of colorectal surgery. So mainly intestinal failure, but also lots of things like if you've had part of your colon removed, that will affect your ability to eat, sorry, and also your ability to absorb certain nutrients and your food related quality of life and things like that. Um, I was then invited to go into academia. So I lectured and researched in my subject for five years, um, most recently at King's College in London. And then in February, I quit my job and now I work as a consultant and I like to pretend I'm unemployed, but really I'm busier than I've ever been <laughs> and I run clinics. I run my business, which is citydieticians.co.uk. Um, we see patients in clinic. We provide consultant dietitians for companies and for startups and people who um, require some nutrition consultancy. Um, and I do things like this and a bit of media work. I do lots of writing and all sorts of bits and pieces, which uh, keeps me busy and very interested all the time. Okay. Um, actually, I became I first became familiar with your work through some of your articles. So I've been following you on Facebook. I'd imagine I'm going to say it's either it's probably since 2016 actually when I first got into your work. Um, it was actually one of your articles on um, I think it was on dairy actually um, at the time. And I do remember when I first read your work, um, I thought, "Wow, it's absolutely refreshing to hear." Such a balanced, unbiased opinion um, on dairy and like it, its role within nutrition. Um, and it was absolutely refreshing because obviously we're in, let's say, um, a world at the moment where there are people who are kind of trying to, let's say, uh, knock down certain foods and say that they don't have any place within their diet. So it was, it was really, really nice to hear your opinion. And then since then, I've read more of your work. And it is, like I said, very, very unbiased, very, very well-researched and very, very well-balanced, which unfortunately, and it's something we're going to discuss a little bit later tonight, is not something that we see all that commonly in the world of nutrition. 
Um, so that's how I got familiar with you. Um, one thing that I'd, I'd like to ask you is, and, and it's because I know you, you give a, a very, very good definition of this. Um, would you be able to explain the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian for me, please? Like very, very briefly. I'll do my best. So uh, anyone, unfortunately, sorry, anyone in the world can call themselves a nutritionist. So it's not a protected title. So if you want to see a nutritionist, please make sure that you check that they've got the relevant credentials and they are the right person to be seeing you um, and that they have got the relevant registration and insurance to do so. Um, dietitians, the best definition that I have come up with over the years, having spent a long time trying to get my mouth around it, is uh, saying that if you have a medical problem, if you want nutritional help with a medical problem that you would see your doctor for, you need a dietitian. So if it's a medical problem you want help with, please see a dietitian. We're the only ones who are medically trained in order to be able to see patients with medical problems. Okay, and I, I, that's the, the definition I've heard you using before, and that's what I really wanted you to get across here, because um, like you said, when somebody has a diagnosed medical condition, you do need a dietitian. And there are, I know a lot of people, and like I, I'm a nutritionist myself, um, I'm not a dietitian, and I'm very, very much of the opinion that if I'm presented with somebody who I realize this is a medical condition. This is something that I am absolutely not qualified for. This is um, this is not within my scope of practice. I'm very, very much, I need to basically send you on to somebody who, refer you on to somebody who can help you onto a dietitian. Um, so yeah, anybody who's a nutritionist out there, bear that in mind, please. Okay, it's very, very important. Um, not just ethically, but also legally as well. Um, right, so today we are going to talk about um, something that is quite dear to your heart, and I will say also to my own, um, and that is tribalism within nutrition. Um, and I suppose just to open up the conversation a little bit, um, what do you mean when you say um, food tribes or tribalism within nutrition? So I suppose my um, the thing that I think about is people who are very much defining themselves by their diet. So someone who's maybe calling themselves the plant-based whatever, um, the prince of whatever, all of these people who are very much um, living their life by their diet. They've made a dietary, a, a choice that their career and their um, current presence on social media and whatever else is based around their diet. Um, I think that's kind of the danger zone in terms of these things. Once your bias is that strong because your, your identity is within your dietary choices, that's when you can become very biased and that's when that tribalism can become a bit dangerous and a bit dogmatic. Um, so I suppose when I think about it, that's kind of what I mean. Is that sort of along the same lines as what you feel? Um, yeah, very, very much so. And I, I find that we're, so we're going through a, a phase in nutrition now where we have a lot of different nutrition tribes or food tribes or whatever way you want to define it um, appearing. And I suppose one of the major um, food tribes, and I suppose actually before we go forward with this, we want to say that when we're speaking about this, we're not, well, we will make some comments on particular diets and particular dietary patterns, but we're talking about tribalism within that nutrition movement. We're not speaking about the nutrition concept itself, unless we, we mention that we are speaking about the nutritional concepts. So if we mention, and I'm going to mention paleo in a moment, we're not saying to people, hey, if you're doing paleo, you know, that's completely wrong. Okay, we're going, we're going to explain ourselves why we think there's issues with that. But so getting back to paleo, paleo became a very, very big movement. And I'm going to say about 15 years ago, potentially, um, I, I could be off with that. 
but paleo became a massive movement within nutrition. And it became something that a lot of people started identifying themselves as. Um, and there are obviously a huge amount of other um, nutritional movements at the moment that um, have also kind of done that. And it also almost takes on a somewhat um, religion type role. Um, and so let's talk about some of these movements um, that you are noticing yourself that are, are becoming bigger um, and kind of what your opinion on those movements are. Would that be okay? Yeah, of course. So yeah, I think paleo is an interesting one because it comes with, generally comes with a whole lifestyle. So typically if you're talking about someone who's, who's on a paleo diet, they might also do CrossFit or do some other kind of very serious gym bro activities as well, which is great and fine if that's how you are choosing to live your life at that time. My, there's some really shaky evidence, you know, um, about not eating certain foods and, you know, making sure you eat loads and loads of meat. And of course that's against some of the things that we know about things like colorectal cancer and that sort of thing. So there are some risks associated with it in that way. Um, but there's risks associated with any kind of restrictive dietary pattern where you choose to cut out food groups. So it's certainly not on its own in that sense. Um, the one I guess that's, um, that gets a lot of media coverage and gets a lot of traction is the vegan movement. Um, and I think, I'll probably share my favourite story, which is that about, uh, about probably about 2016, at the height of the kind of vegan movement, people were very evangelistic at that time, and I think things are a little bit better now. And um, I was invited to go on to BBC Two to talk about the about about the vegan movement in general and the nutritional consequences. And I was on a panel discussion with a guy who called himself at the time the Prince of Vegans, and um, he was very outspoken about his beliefs, tried to convert lots of people, was very, very angry about the way that animals were treated, rightly so. Um, and I should mention that all these people have seen the, what I would call shockumentaries, the um, what the health and what's in cowspiracy, and that's why they turned to veganism. Um, and we can talk about that in more detail later, maybe. And what I said on the programme was that there are nutritional consequences of following a vegan diet and that that can lead to nutritional deficiencies and that you, it is harder to meet your nutritional requirements. And at the time, I naively thought that was an incredibly you know, easy message to get across, that people would accept that, that people would think that was an absolutely fine thing to say. And of course, my colleagues were completely on my team, but my that the vegan community were very angry um, with me for saying that. At that time, I got lots of death threats, lots of hate mail, lots of people saying we'd get cut, they're going to get me taken off the register and all sorts of things. And um, it was a very difficult time for me personally, but also obviously that's a challenge professionally as well because you just feel like it completely attacked and you can't quite figure out why. Um, if we fast forward two years, um, this guy has now gone back to eating meat as a result of uh, horrible nutritional deficiencies. And I reached out to him because what I really felt was really valuable from what he'd been through, which is an awful experience to have to have identified yourself by something so solidly that you call yourself the prince of vegans and you're living that life and you're completely in it to have gone to having to come out as eating meat again, having been this evangelistic person and, and struggling, like, identifying yourself so much by that. I reached out to him and I just said what I'd really like to know. I basically said, I'm really sorry about what you went through and what you're going through at the moment. You must be having a very difficult time. I understand that it's not an easy thing to do. I'd love to be able to learn from you what, we, what I could have said to you at the time that would have actually helped you to prevent the, the things that you're going through. Because it's not that a plant-based diet can't be nutritionally complete. It's just not nutritionally complete without supplementation for most people. And I wish I somehow could have got that message across to him. 
But what he said to me was uh, that there's nothing I could have said. There's nothing you could have done. There's nothing you could have said at that time that would have changed my mind. I was completely in that life. I was living that life. Every scientific paper I saw was based around veganism. Every blog I wrote, read was based around veganism. There was nothing you could have done. And I was like, one, well, that's depressing. And I don't know how I'm supposed to help. And what I could, like, there's no answer to anything in a straightforward way, which is challenging and difficult. Um, but two, I sort of felt, well, at least I tried. And, and maybe we do need to just, as, health, as healthcare professionals, as scientific nutrition community, I feel like if we sit in our space and we remain a solid voice of balance in, this, in all of these debates, then we can really uh, be the home that people come back to when they've been off on these polarized explorations in nutrition. If we as an evidence-based community, as a medical community remain balanced, people can come to us when they're ready and when they need that advice. Um, but I think that's difficult. And we live in a world now where it's very trendy as a doctor to label yourself by your diet and all sorts of other things. So um, that's a long-winded way of saying sometimes I think we can try and reach people who are polarized and actually you can't always win, win that fight. Um, I would agree. Um, just from that like little, uh, let's say anecdote, there are a huge amount of segues that we can take within this conversation. Um, but the first one I, I, I kind of want to speak about is, so let's talk about, we're talk, we'll talk about vegan diets and you obviously mentioned that, you know, you, you can have a perfectly healthy vegan diet with supplementation. So let's just talk about some of the, um, let's say, the nutritional bases that a vegan has to be particularly careful about, um, because this is going to come into the conversation a little bit later on. Um, so what do vegans need to kind of take note of when they're kind of structuring their diet? So um, just to be clear, removing any food group come from your diet comes with nutritional consequences. So even if you're just dairy free, but you continue to eat meat, you still need to be conscious about the, the consequences of that. So um, B12 is kind of the big one that we talk about a lot with vegan diets, and that's because vitamin B12 really isn't available from plant products. It's just not available in, in, a, in enough, in adequate quantities, in a bioavailable way, so a way that our body can access from plant-based foods. So you have to supplement um, B12 and other B vitamins really as well to be safe. Um, and the other thing that we worry about is things, we used to worry about protein, we just don't worry about that anymore really, but B12, the other thing that I worry about, and it's not kind of out there completely yet, is <clears throat> um, essential fatty acids. So algae oil, fish oil, we don't get those essential fatty acids on a plant-based diet, except for from algae that the fish would eat. And so it's so important that um, for heart rate variability, for brain function, all these kinds of things, that people on a plant-based diet consider their essential fatty acids specifically from algae oil as opposed to from seeds and things because we just can't convert enough of it into an active form um, in our bodies. Um, things like folate, we could talk about things like um, iodine and things like that, which are must, much less available. Um, but if you're getting the big ones right, then you should, should be doing a bit better. I mean, we used to also worry a lot about iron. Iron is a little bit better. I worry loads about bone health, but that's not something that a lot of people worry about specifically on plant-based diets. But there are so many... The, the some of those core minerals are so much more difficult to access not only from a sort of amount in the food itself but also in the ways that our bodies can or can't use it effectively so there's lots and lots of um higher risk uh nutritional behaviors in on a plant-based diet that we just need to be aware of and that people need to be uh making sure they're supplementing carefully 
Absolutely, um, and I can I, I definitely agree with all of the um, the let's say the strategies or the, the particular nutrients that you, you mentioned there that people need to supplement. Um, I think one thing to be clear of is we're not saying this just because theoretically somebody's going to be you know uh, deficient in any of these minerals. Like um, from my own like uh, looking into this, I, there are some studies that have shown, let's say for example. Um, higher levels of iron deficiency within uh, vegan vegetarian populations. Um, one of the, the more interesting ones I find is that higher levels of, or higher rates of bone fracture within um, vegan vegetarian populations. And, and, you know, that doesn't sound, okay, that is obviously, it does sound serious. Um, that gets particularly serious as somebody's getting older, um, you know, and when somebody can have, if somebody has a, a you know, if they break their hip, for example, that could, for a lot of people that can be a death, a death sentence. Um, you know, when it comes to bed rest and kind of loss of muscle mass. Um, so we, we've just touched on some of the things that vegans need to be aware of. And we know this, these are, these are scientifically proven. But one of the issues within food tribalism, and we, we don't mean to be picking on, on, on veganism, uh, uh, so to speak, but you mentioned that the the uh, person you were speaking about who you couldn't help, he wouldn't have listened to you. He said that everything that he was reading was um, vegan blogs or evidence, um, vegan evidence. He was basically cherry picking the information that he was getting. Yeah. Um, and I find that that is something that is very, very common within a lot of these uh, nutritional movements. Um and just to kind of to, to build on that, I had a conversation this weekend with a few people at a, a conference I was at, and uh, it was kind of discussed that the term evidence-based is becoming very, very dilute at the moment because um, obviously I think evidence-based nutrition is absolutely vital, but the understanding of what that means is becoming dilute in that if somebody finds one study for a certain concept that's, you know, basically fits their biases, they can say that what they're saying is evidence-based, whereas we know that evidence-based is based on the, the body of research that we have. Um, do you find that that, let's say, cherry-picking data is, is common within this tribalism yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, you and I both know that nutritional research is really complicated it's really hard to design and create really good quality nutritional studies for all kinds of different reasons. And that doesn't mean that there aren't good quality studies and that doesn't mean that we don't know what we're talking about and that it's not evidence-based. It just means that it is hard to create good quality studies. And that a lot of the studies are, that are quoted are very poor quality. They might have been published in very poor quality journals. They might be very small sample size. There's all kinds of things that go into evaluating research, which is, is hard work. You know, we have students leaving university after four years of a degree still struggling to assess and appraise papers in, an, in a sort of safe and adequate way. I think um, that it's, for me with nutrition, it's about somebody understanding the whole body of literature in that area. Um, and this is something that me and my business partner, Dr. Nicola Guest, are really passionate about is getting people to, who are talking about nutrition, any aspect of nutrition, to really pick a subject because nutrition is just so broad. So for me to say, I'm a dietitian and therefore I'm gonna see you for your diabetes and I'm gonna talk um, on the radio about diabetes just because I'm a dietitian, 
never really worked with patients with diabetes. It's really not my thing. I don't know the evidence base. I don't know the body of literature. So whilst you can, anyone can pick, go into PubMed and pick out a paper and say, this paper backs up what I want to say, so I'm just going to use this. It doesn't mean that you understand the body of literature behind that. So you can't then understand where that sits, whether most people agree with that or whether most people disagree with that, whether that's there's a paper that was released two years before that or two years after that completely disproves the point of that paper. You need to be able to understand that whole dynamic in that whole area of literature. And you can't pretend to be able to do that in, you know, if you're talking about a whole of the whole of nutritional research, it's just not a thing. That's not how it works. So you know, my point being, nutrition is complicated and you need to be able to understand the whole body of literature rather than just being, anyone can type into PubMed a search and just pick out the first paper that backs up their belief. If you don't understand where that sits in the whole body of literature, you're best not touching it in terms of discussion. I, I think that's a, a very, very good point um, when you come to discussing a, an actual topic. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to the evidence-based movement because um, I find that there are a lot of people, again, who would consider themselves to be within the evidence-based movements. Um, and they're basing a lot of their information on the information that, um, let's say, whoever they're following within that area is saying. Um, and there seems to be a lot of blind trust when it comes to, let's say, the people on the street, the layperson, and what people with a little bit more, let's say, social clout um, are saying. So, for example, every movement seems to have its, um, and I absolutely hate this word, but it has their gurus within it. Mm -hmm. Um, and people very, very much listen to what their guru says. They take that, uh, take that word as gospel. And I'm using that word gospel intentionally because I, I, I very, very much want to um, make that association between religion and dogma. Um, they're taking it as, as gospel truth. Um, and that's not what evidence-based nutrition is. Um, and I know that everybody can't go out and do a lot of research themselves. But if somebody's going to be having a discussion or an argument about something like this, um, that's a different situation and that's where somebody needs to um, basically educate themselves more about what they're talking about. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, are on that yourself. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that there's, there is a guru for everything. There is someone who will tell you that they're right regardless. And that, you know, but they are, nine times out of 10, they're trying to sell you something. Anyone who has a specific bias has got something to sell you, whether it's a, you know, they're trying to get more followers, whether it's that they're just trying to um, sell books or whatever it might be. Everyone who has a dogmatic uh, belief is trying to essentially sell you something. And that's why it's so difficult as kind of balanced evidence-based people to, to have that sort of middle ground. Cause it's not sexy. Like, like saying moderation doesn't really sell any books. No one's going to buy a book that's like, the moderation diet by Sophie that's just not like that's not a thing no one's interested so um I think that's the thing but the thing that worries me the most is when people use their medical title or their dietetics title whatever it might be to polarize people so people who have people have power when you have a professional um label and having that professional label gives you that power and people believe you just because you're a doctor people believe you just because you're a dietitian and actually if you're you, you can still be just as polarized as other people there's a very famous medic who is telling everybody to uh, not worry about saturated fat eat as much saturated fat as you can and everyone should get off their statins 
and of course that's really that's really dangerous advice for most people the very the biggest part of me the medical research that we have suggests the absolute opposite of that but he has a loud voice he's in parliament he's making moves and it's it's really dangerous he's very polarized his whole career is based on what he believes and uh you know ultimately what will happen is people will start to die and then he will suddenly have to go in front of the gmc but that's he's one example of doctors using their title in, a, in an arena that perhaps they don't really have enough education in, which is nutrition, because nutrition is trendy, but it doesn't mean that, you know, as a doctor, you've had enough education in it really to be talking about it in a general way, unless you've done lots of extra qualifications. So yeah, every movement has its people who will promote it. You'll notice that in America, it's much easier for doctors to say kind of whatever they want really about nutrition um, and about food and medicine generally without getting any sort of consequences of that. Um, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to be the moderate voice in a sea of polarization, really, I guess. Absolutely. Um, kind of uh, just sticking on the, the topic of doctors, obviously. So doctors are highly respected. And when it comes to medical issues um, or anything to do with health, really, a doctor is always considered to be uh, basically the, let's say, almost the top of the pyramid when it comes to somebody who you would ask for advice. Um, but you know, in general, I'm, we're, we're quite aware of this, that doctors do not receive a huge amount. Um, or, or actually, I'll go as far to say as doctors receive very, very little um, in the line of nutrition education um, as part of their course. Now, um, I don't think that is, I think that's reasonable because doctors have a huge amount of responsibility when it comes to learning how to do their trade. Um, and they're learning about aspects of physiology and aspects of pharmacology and how to deal with treating conditions um, through medicine. Tr treating conditions through nutrition is incredibly nuanced um, and incredibly complex. And it's because of that that we have people like dietitians, um, people who are trained specifically to fulfill that role. Um, but like you said, there are certain doctors who and it may be, and actually it more than likely is because of their own personal experiences with a particular diet, decide that this diet is the correct diet that everybody needs to be following. And it becomes a case where they start preaching that diet um, and they get a lot, they get a great audience because of that. And so, for example, you mentioned that doctor who was talking about, you know, everybody should be eating um, saturated fats and cutting out statins. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have um, doctors who are promoting a completely plant-based diet. Yeah. Um, I um, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, British Society for Lifestyle Medicine by any chance. Yeah, yeah. So the, the BSLM, which I think in 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 theory, in concept, is an absolutely fantastic movement. I, I'm I'm very very happy to see more doctors being concerned with lifestyle change. Um, and nutrition change when it comes to helping people. Um, but at the moment, it seems to be, again, a very, very polarized group where you have um, tribes of people who are, let's say, um, very, very much on the low-carb, um, high animal product side. And then you have people who are on the higher-carb, uh, plant-based diet side. Um, and so, yeah, let's just talk a little bit about that polarization because we have extremes that people are being drawn to. Whereas, you know, uh, we do know from an evidence-based perspective that, let's say, the truth lies more within this gray area in between. Um, what are your own thoughts on why that polarization develops? 
Um, I think it develops in medicine because of lack of nutrition education, unfortunately. I think that medics see that um, the current medical interventions aren't working, obesity is getting worse, diabetes is getting worse. They also see that dietitians have been around for a long time and things aren't getting any better. Um, so they feel that current, what we're currently doing isn't working. And I understand that. Um, and I understand that frustration, but that leaves people vulnerable to somebody coming in with an evangelistic uh, point of view and preaching and saying, you know, join my tribe, tell everyone they're wrong, cut out, cut, cut out the carbs, do this, do that. When actually, as you say, you know, in that movement, that the bulk of the literature, the whole body of literature, as I was saying before, suggests that actually health lies somewhere in the middle of that, and that the healthiest people in the world probably have quite a high carbohydrate diet. People who enjoy the best quality of life and the best like, uh, longevity and all these other measures have a relatively high carbohydrate diet. That doesn't mean that we should all have a high carbohydrate diet because those people may also have a very active lifestyle, not do sedentary jobs, all these kinds of things. So it's complex. That said, you know, we need to look at the whole body of literature, not just focus on one thing. And um, I think doctors are vulnerable. You know, doctors are vulnerable to those evangelistic nutritional people who have a specific point to prove and something to sell because they want they want solutions. And ultimately, I think that comes from a good place. It comes from a place of wanting to help people. It comes from a place of wanting things to be better for people, for their patients. The trouble is that uh, they're being led down the wrong path. Absolutely. Um, I, I think what you said there is, you know, doctors are humans too. And um, humans are very, very much subject to bias and subject to outside influence. Um, and it's understandable because... Um, I'm going to speak for myself. Um, I'm not going to speak for you, but I will say that I have, um, I'm, in, I'm saying this inverted commas again, um, I have believed certain nutritional concepts in the past that um, because I was in, uh, I, I was reading up on a certain nutritional movement. Um, and now I look back on it and I literally, you know, want to do the biggest face palm ever, basically, just to think, how did I actually believe that? What was going through my mind at the time? Um, but at the time, um, I did think, well, this is, this is true. This is, this is what I've heard. This is what I've, I've read from the sources that I was reading um, at the time. Um, we, we've kind of dwelled a little bit on the, um, on the let's say, the plant-based side of things. Um, one very, very recent uh, nutritional movement that has, uh, let's say, gotten a lot of uh, media coverage uh, recently is the uh, carnivore movement, yeah. which is pretty much the antithesis of the uh, the plant based vegan movement. Um, of the vegans. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it was it was something that I I'm going to be completely honest. I didn't see it coming. I did not see that that as being a potential movement that would happen. But you know, here we are. Um, uh, you know, we've got uh, some very, very interesting people in power in the United States and here in the UK as well. Like, so anything can happen. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, let's say, the carnivore movement at the moment and how it's developed um, and its relationship to the vegan movement? So I think it's developed as a direct result of the vegan movement as a rebellion against the vegan movement. I think that's where a lot of it has sprung from. Obviously, um, I'm sure that anyone who follows that 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 tribe specifically will tell me I'm wrong and it's been around a lot longer than the vegan movement, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure the vegans would say the opposite. My feeling is that when you are so evangelistic about anything, 
you create people who want to go on the other side of it. So if you create delicious and, and amazing vegan food and you say, come and enjoy it and have a nice time with us and we're a nice friendly community, you're more likely to get people eating vegan food than if you are saying you're awful and you rape cows if you drink milk and you're a horrible human if you come and if you do any of these things. If you touch meat, you're disgusting and you might as well die. People said to me, I'm going to come and rape your children. I'm like, well, I don't have any, but also why are you so angry? <laughs> that, that was an actual comment that you received. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the, in the handwritten letter, called me a Nazi-eyed troll as well, which was kind. <laughs> anyway, My goodness. Point being, if you're that angry, you are going to polarise people. You're going to send people to the opposite end of the spectrum. And really mm -hmm. what we all want to be doing is getting people closer to the centre where, you know, real health lies, as we were talking about before. So I think that the carnivore movement has is a direct result of the vegan movement becoming so um vocal i guess also growing so much um but you know equally you know i sound like i'm anti-vegan and i'm not at all and i had a very challenging conversation on twitter which is not a platform i enjoy using at all a very challenging conversation on twitter about um the microbiome with the carnivore community the carnivore community um were saying that you don't need microbes what the hell are you talking about but hadn't even really heard of microbiome and i was like but you've, you're not you're not getting any fibre. They're like, no, we're completely fibre-free. And I'm like, but you have a microbiome with microbes that do such important stuff for your body and your brain and all this kind of stuff, and you're not giving them anything at all. And do you know, have you seen any of this literature? And they were like, prove it, prove it. And, which is what people always say. And I'm like, well, what specifically would you like to hear? Because the microbiome has been studied for a long time. And yes, the research is in its infancy, but we know loads about it. Did you want to hear about it for cardiovascular disease? Did you want to hear about it for mental health? Did you want to hear about it for diabetes? What did you, what specifically would you like me to send you? Because just proving, I, I can't just pick up a paper that proves you the microbiome exists because it's just scientific facts. <laughs> and I was like, I was really shocked. Like as a colorectal dietitian, especially I was like, I can't, I can't believe that you just don't accept that this is a thing because it's, you, because you're so polarized because no one's talking about it. And I think there's, you know, this, those sorts of communities, ultimately people will unfortunately suffer terrible health consequences in the same way lots of other people will, and then they'll come back to the centre because there's only one way through that. Very much so. It is, um, I, I find that nutrition can be a very, very much um, learn by um, mistakes and experience, um, uh, let's say process for a lot of people. Um, I actually had, I was speaking last week with um, Dr. Uh, Gabrielle Fundero, who's a um, let's say, uh, a researcher in, in gut health. Um, and we were speaking about the carnivore diet. And um, she literally, when I, when I brought up the carnivore diet, she literally rolled her eyes so far back, I thought they were going to stay back there uh, permanently. Um, but again, there is a huge amount of research out there that you know we're aware of that shows that plants and, and fiber are essential for the maintenance and of a healthy gut microbiome. And as you said, it's, it's responsible for a huge, um, uh, it's, it's, it plays, plays a role in a huge amount of different aspects of our health. Um, when it comes to uh, the carnivore diet itself, so I, um, this is a weird thing that I do, but I've put myself into certain um, groups on Facebook, um, basically as kind of like a sleeper agent. Um, and I just, want to see what's going on in these because genuinely if if I, i'm going to talk about these i like to know what people are saying and what people are thinking um so i sit back in one of the groups and just 
listen. And one of the things, and it very, very much relates to what you said about um, carnivore almost being a direct, let's almost say knee-jerk reaction uh, off the back of the vegan movement is there is a huge amount of contempt within the um, carnivore movement towards veganism. And one thing that they continuously say is that vegans are completely blind to the evidence. They uh, only listen to what, you know, the crap information that they put out themselves. Um, They literally have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know how they sound when they're talking about their own diet. The Um, beautiful. The irony is ridiculous. (laughs) It is, but it's continuous. It's like every second post in some of these groups is like that. But it is incredibly ironic that you have two groups that feel identical and just have two different belief systems um, and kind of uh, they feel identical in relation to each other. Um, once again, we're, we're continuing on the on the topic of veganism. Um, one uh, thing that, or one podcast that brought this conversation that we're having right now about, um, about polarization um, and food tribes was a podcast that appeared about two weeks ago. And it's, was about plant-based nutrition and its role in health. Um, do you want to kind of give a little bit of an overview of what that, that podcast was about um, without going into you know, too many details? Sure. So we're, we're not going to name names, so I'll do my best. So <laughs> the podcast is hosted by somebody who is very, very famous in the world of nutrition, but has no nutrition qualifications. I think that's really important to point out. One, because that person is very powerful and has a very loud voice. Um, but two, because um, people don't realize that actually there's no nutritional knowledge behind or uh, education, let's say formal education behind that, which then means that when that person has guests on their podcast, they can't understand the evidence base in the same way that a scientist or a dietitian would. So this person had had a guest uh, on her podcast who um, also has a very polarized view of nutrition and is very much a proponent of the plant-based movement and plant-based diets. And there was absolute outcry in the sort of uh, evidence-based nutrition community to say that there was a huge amount of uh, misreporting of information, very poor data sources used, um, some really like dangerously misleading information about plant-based diets and how there's no risk and you can get everything that you need from a plant-based diet. And without any caveats for safety or for uh, consideration of any of the other things that we really need to be thinking about for people. One of the massive challenges I have with that podcast and with that that person in particular who's, who's promoting that diet is that I feel that if you are within that community, you have a responsibility to the people in your community. If you are a big, if you really believe in the plant-based movement from an ethical perspective, for example, or whatever else, amazing, talk about it and, and do that but you need to still look after the health of your community because ultimately you're going to end up with lots of sick people within the vegan community which then drives people away from it so if you really believe in it take your responsibility seriously and share evidence-based and safe health messages for your community that i think that's just so important um i do some work so i'm going to slightly off topic do some work with a friend of mine who makes uh, vegan uh, plant-based supplements and he said that he sees every fair that he's going to people losing more and more hair people asking that telling me they're feeling so tired saying they've got terrible bowel problems saying that they've got problems with their skin that their mouth is sore reporting all of these things that we know for a fact are symptoms of deficiency and common deficiencies on plant-based diets 
but nobody's talking about them. Nobody's raising awareness. You don't see any images of the risks of deficiency. And this doctor had a platform on this hugely, you know, internationally listened to podcast to say, I believe in it, it's what I choose to do, but there are some risks. And what she chose to do instead was misreport the evidence that we have and to tell uh, people that it was completely safe for everybody at any stage and that you didn't need to supplement and that you can get everything you need from soil, which we just know is false. Um, so it's very dangerous information on there and very, very irresponsible and arguably, you know, questionable in terms of whether that person should be being discussed, you know, being talked to by the GMC and whatever else. So it's, yeah, interesting, um, interesting things that have been going on in that world. I, I found that podcast particularly interesting um, in that I found that some of the concepts that were being discussed were, um, so some points were made and they were absolutely valid about the benefits of a plant-based diet. And again, um, you know, I just want to reiterate that, you know, I feel that, you know, having a high consumption of, pla uh, of plants is absolutely vital for, for health. Um, and I, I absolutely believe that. And I absolutely believe that, you know, a vegan diet can be very, very healthy, you know, once it's planned correctly. Um, but there were, um, I've gone off, I've gone off topic. Um, uh, yeah, so there were some concepts that were mentioned that were very, very truthful. And I found myself nodding my head to, um, and then there were also, um, concepts that were mentioned and I was like, well, that's not true or we don't know that. And I think that makes it very, very difficult for um, people who are listening to these podcasts, especially people who don't have any other nutritional background, because they'll hear this and they'll hear things that they that are true or that they know to be true, um, or at least they think they know to be true. And then they'll hear these other concepts and they'll they assume that, well, the same person is saying these, these must also be true as well. Um, so one of them was uh, obviously on, on the matter of B12 and um, vegans probably not needing to actually supplement with B12. Um, and we know that that's incorrect. Um, but they also mentioned, well, vegans um, are able to store B12 in their body for five or six years, which is absolutely true. Um, but after that period, people do notice deficiencies and that they, you know, it, it has been documented within the literature that people can suffer deficiencies from not having any B12. Yeah. Um, what, what I found was particularly, um, and I'm going to use the word dangerous, was when they started speaking about vegan nutrition for babies and for children. Um, there were some concepts that were mentioned um, about, for example, uh, the calcium intake in, in the calcium content of vegetables. Um, and we know that the bioavailability bio of calcium from vegetarian sources isn't the same as the bioavailability from milk. Um, there, were, there was also uh, a, a con something mentioned about vegan diets uh, being less likely to cause food allergies. And I have not seen any evidence in the literature that says that whatsoever, but it was stated as almost being a fact. Yeah. Uh, and um, ju just for anybody who's listening to the, this on, on podcast, uh, Sophie's rolling her eyes back pretty far from, <laughs> as she's listening to I this as well. <laughs> um, and then the other one that um, I found very, very um, kind of worrying as well was uh, it was babies of vegans, uh, vegan mothers' uh, taste buds are actually primed for healthier diets because of the diets of their mothers. And again, that's something that we have absolutely no evidence on whatsoever. But you have a doctor 
a professional, somebody well-respected, on, like what you said, was a very, very popular, um, very, very well-known podcast stating this as fact. And people are going to listen to that and believe it. And, and that's something that um, I myself think is, is, is completely unethical. I completely agree. And I think that the thing is, especially when you talk about things like allergies, when we talk about things that people are really scared of, when people talk about things like cancer and those sorts of things, you're talking about things that people are really scared of. And when you target you know, young, not necessarily young mums, mums who ha have just had babies, mums who are expectant mothers, everyone in that group is are desperate to do the right thing. And they're vulnerable in that sense to these kinds of messages. And actually to target that group for your own dogma is incredibly unethical. It's probably worth mentioning that there are several countries now who have said that actually it's not right to raise children on vegan diets. I don't believe we'll adopt that stance in this country, but Belgium is one of the countries that have said actually we're not, we don't support babies and children being raised on vegan diets. We don't think it's nutritionally sound or safe. Um, so, you know, it's not, that's just unsafe and not correct advice. And it's not good advice. It's not the advice that I would expect from, from a doctor, from a registered doctor, you know, somebody who has a responsibility to the long-term health of her patients. I think a lot of these people have got completely caught up in their Insta-famous lifestyle and care far more about followers than they do about the, the long-term health of their patients. Um, what you mentioned there about them be caring more about their followers, I think, is, is quite relevant because, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, the um, let's say the vegan prince that you mentioned, I'm sure that when they did um, switch to uh, start, well, start eating meat again, they probably suffered quite a backlash from their following. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I'd imagine that somebody who has built their identity around a certain food dogma is basically they're setting themselves up to remain very, very much um, evangelical within that within that that dogma itself. So um, you're very, very unlikely to see somebody like like this podcast that we're speaking about that was very, very much plant based making non plant based recommendations or or saying anything that could go against the dogma of that. So, for example, like 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 you said earlier, just providing evidence-based information saying, well, you know, we, we do know that this diet that we follow, you know, is, is not nutritionally adequate in this sense. So what we can do is we can supplement with something else because they're basically opening themselves up to um, attack from their own followers. Would I be right in, in saying that? Well, totally. And I think that the, the issue for me is that if someone like the doctor we're talking about, but also the, the low-carb doctor's, if they, who, who have big followings, who've built careers on that kind of movement, if there was a big review, a big journal that came out that, you know, a paper that came out that really was against what they were saying, they will attack it. They'll say it's wrong. They'll say it's badly designed. There's no, there's, there's not that openness to saying, actually, I've read things slightly differently, or actually, I think it's important that we review this and we take it seriously. They, they can't do that. One from a PR perspective, you know, the PR agents would kill them. They'd lose a load of money on book sales potentially and they'd lose a load of followers. So they're not gonna do that. So not being open to um, new research is a failure of your requirement as a doctor. As a doctor, as any kind of registered healthcare professional, you're required to stay up to date with evidence-based literature and medicine. 
And if you ignore papers because it doesn't fit in new research, it doesn't fit in with your with your bias, you know, with your decisions that you've made around your identity, you are not practicing safe medicine. You are not doing things in the way that the GMC and the British Dietetic Association and whoever else have decided is, is the safe and right way of doing things. It's very, very dangerous. You've built a career around a very polarized view. You are not going to be open to new literature that comes out that tells you differently. Very, very well said. Um, and I think one thing that is important to, to look for when you're, if like just, just for people here who, who may be, um, you know, may not be, let's say, nutrition professionals or dietitians, anybody who's listening to this, um, people do want to know who should I be following in, in this field. And I think one, I'm, I'm not going to name names or anything like that, but I am going to say that one aspect that you should always look for is somebody who is willing well, who's both open to evidence and willing to change their views. Because I have, let's say, certain nutrition policies that, uh, that I follow, and I follow based on everything that I've learned over the years. Um, but if new evidence comes out, I'm perfectly willing to change my stance based on new evidence and, and how that fits within the body of evidence. But if I'm, some, if I'm suddenly going to say, oh, well, you know what, I'm going to disregard that because what I've been doing has been working for me and the people I've been working with up until now, then, then I, I, I'm, I, I would consider myself to be a hack, literally, because yeah. you're, you're, you're doing people a disservice by not um, being open to that research. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone that you work with and you're putting people at risk. And the more nutrition is really, nutrition research is in its infancy for all sorts of different reasons. And actually we need to be open to it changing it's a constantly changing thing if you think about the literature around low carbohydrate diets you know we've had such a huge surge of interest and exploration of that in the last kind of couple of years and it's amazing what we're learning about the the potential think about how actually until now we didn't even think we could reverse type 2 diabetes or get it into remission and now look at what we're doing and it's amazing and we need to be open to that stuff and anyone who is you know, still teaching people that they should be eating, I don't know, I don't know loads of carbohydrates with every meal if they've got diabetes, needs to be looking at themselves because that's not what the best literature we have available now is suggesting. That said, you can't just jump on the latest thing without understanding it within the whole context of the body of literature. And it's, it is complicated. Nutrition science is complicated. The risk being that if you are massively biased and you've built an identity on a polarised view, you will undoubtedly stick to your dogma rather than being open to new literature because you'll lose followers, you'll lose book sales, whatever it is that you, you built your career on. Yes, and unfortunately, people uh, value those followers more than um, integrity. Um, one, uh, so w uh, one, one thing that... Um, so I, I'm kind of aware of the time and I don't want to run over too much because you've been very, very generous with your time already. Um, one thing that I would like to kind of ask... Um, kind of before we kind of start drawing this to a close is why do you think so many people are starting to follow these polarized views um, when it comes to diet and starting to associate those diets with their identities nowadays? Um, I think unfortunately it's because people are missing community in their life from other places um, if you think about a lot of the things that we do now, which are probably relatively unhealthy behaviours, a lot of them come from missing having a community. And if you join a community of people who all support you and all say you're doing the right thing and this is amazing and look at us and it gains you followers and it gains you 
uh, some level of support that perhaps you're lacking from other places, then I think that that makes you feel like you're doing the right thing. And it gives you that thing that you're lacking maybe from community and the things that we maybe used to have in the past that we don't really have anymore. Um, and I, I think that's partly why I think people feel that they need some kind of thing that makes them stand out. They need a thing that gets them more likes and more followers than other people. We're in this kind of competitive liking and following environment, which is just bizarre and it's new and we don't really understand the impact of it on people's mental health and also on our life generally. Um, but I just believe it's because we lack community and that following a, a polarized dietary tribe gives you a tribe. It gives you that community that people are looking for. And again, me saying to you, oh yeah, I also eat lots of vegetables and you know have a meat-free day a few times a week and I don't eat a lot of meat at home, but I eat meat when I'm out. Like, that's not really a, this is what I am. Are you that as well? We don't get that same thing. We get this, yeah, I eat meat in moderation too. Yeah, boring. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's, yeah, a, it, there's tribalism to that. Absolutely. Instead of kind of walking up to uh, some other people who are vegan and saying, hey, I'm vegan and getting a high five, you know, you just walk up to other people who like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't eat meat that much either. And you just get to like, whatever, <laughs> you know, um, it's like, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's, it's not as exciting. It's like, yeah. And I, I completely agree. I, I do feel that it is people um, missing out on that, that sense of community that we are genuinely missing out on in, in, in this day and age. Um, Sophie, I like, this conversation so far has absolutely been amazing. And we haven't even touched on some of the other things that we, we mentioned that we were going to, to speak about. Um, and I think that only means that, you know, you're going to have to come back and um, <laughs> speak with me again, um, which I would absolutely love if you're, if you're open to that. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, what, uh, if people want to follow you or kind of um, read more of your content, um, how can they find you? So um, I'm Sophie Dietitian on all social media platforms and people need to remember that it's dietitian spelled with two T's, not a T-I-C. And uh, my business is City Dietitian, citydietitian.co.uk. So please do go and check that out. Um, we offer clinics, we offer consultancy, all those other things that we talked about at the beginning. So please have a look if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's the best way really. And most of my content is screenshotted and on social media with links. So you should be able to read anything. I write for people like Forbes and The Independent and all kinds of other outlets. So if you want to read some more of my work, then please feel free to have a look around. You should be able to find some of it somewhere. Fantastic. And I, I would highly recommend that any of you, if you do have the chance, please do read um, some of Sophie's content. Like I said, it is incredibly well-balanced in the world of nutrition and well-balanced is something that we do not get enough of and um, you'll stand to learn a lot and you'll probably be able to uh, kind of hopefully move away from those um, the, those concepts of identifying yourself with, um, with your diet. Um, Sophie, I want to thank you so much for today. Um, this conversation has absolutely been uh, amazing. Um, some people have already mentioned it here in the comments that they already want to have you back, so we will be doing that. Um, and um, yeah, uh, thank you. And um, hopefully we will get to chat again very, very soon. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for your kind words and all that support. Yeah, I think you and I do. Uh, I think we're on very similar wavelengths online. And so we do support each other a lot, which I really appreciate. So thanks for having me on. I'd love to come back again. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Sophie. Bye. Take care. Bye.
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live uh, or ask questions for our guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at Be More Nutrition. Uh, I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.